If you have your Bibles, turn to Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, and uh, that's in Old Testament, kind of the back of the New Testament, uh, Joel, oh, um, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, all the minors there, all the minor stuff uh, there in the, in the back of Old Testament. I'm continuing in a series called The Greater Work. And a week before last, uh, we were learning about uh, fasting and praying and uh, what Jesus said about that, about fasting and and praying. And we've been in a a time of fasting and praying as a church. We've seen some very incredible things to take place during these first 18 days. One of the keys that we touched on a couple of weeks ago was repentance. Here's the principle. As we pray and we fast and we seek God, our attention will be turned squarely toward him. And when we're turned squarely toward him, then I want you to hear me, there is no capacity to look anywhere else. You following what I'm saying? And in this place where there's no capacity to look anywhere else to the left or the right, there is no exception to the fact that we will be brought face to face with our own sin in light of his holiness. That's what we face. And when the Holy Spirit brings us face to face with our own sin, the Holy Spirit does that to present us with a choice. We're presented then of changing our minds and coming into agreement with God or remaining in our own way of thinking. That's just how it is. This occurs in the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl, saved or unsaved. See, every person on the planet has the call of repentance from the Holy Spirit. For the unbeliever, the Holy Spirit comes to the person to convict them that they need a Savior and that God, of God's righteousness in the coming judgment. We see that in John 16. We know that the Holy Spirit does that work. That's part of his work among the world. For the believer, the Holy Spirit comes to the person to convict us of sin and anything that must change in order to remain in right relationship with God. Now, Joel, if you recall, is one of the passages that we studied in in our three days uh, in our fasting and prayer. Do you remember that, Joel? This should be familiar if you're walking with us through the fast. Um, Joel 2, chapter 2 is a call to repentance, is what it is. In fact, the title, uh, the that's that's where I got the the title of this message, is because it's it's the it's the title there in my Bible, a call to repentance. And I want to walk you through today, and I want to talk about what true repentance looks like, and then I want to share with you several common sins that if they remain and unrepentance will hinder us from answered prayer. I'm going to ask if you would stand in the honor of reading God's word. We're going to pray first, and then we'll begin reading in Joel 2, verse 11. Would you pray with me? And and here's what I'd ask 
of you today. If you have, I know you're holding your Bible with one hand, but if you would just maybe open up a hand to the Lord, just to, in a receiving posture, would you, would you do that? If you feel comfortable doing so. So Lord, we come to you today and we're, we're desperate, hungry, needy people. And Lord, I need you to speak to us today, all of us. You know right where we are. And Lord, I trust you in these days and in this moment. God, give us your strength. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, and help us to respond out of obedience to you. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, this very day, our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please remain standing. Let's read the word of God together. We're going to start uh, in verse 11 in Joel chapter. Did everybody find Joel, by the way? Did you find old Joel? All right, here we go. The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army, and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. And I'll tell you what the day of the Lord means in a moment. Who can possibly survive? That is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time and give me your hearts. Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothes in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and he's compassionate and he's slow to get angry and he's filled, look at this, with unfailing love. And he is eager to relent. Now, you remember we've talked about that word relent before. What's the other word in the trans some translations? What's the other word for relent? Do you remember? Repent. He is eager to relent and not to punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. And perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now let me tell you what's happening here. In verse 11, he says, the day of the Lord. What this means and what he's talking about is that, that judgment awaits Judah. And they're at the cusp of judgment. And at the cusp of judgment, this call extends from God for corporate repentance of his people. And Joel is saying to them, and he's, he says, 
If you think what you've already experienced, because they've had locusts, they've had some plagues come on them. If you think what you've already experienced is judgment, if you think that, just wait, because God's mercy is still extended. And praise God for that, because who then could possibly survive what God will do? See, what Joel, as most prophets were not, he was not all warm and fuzzy. He did not sugarcoat things for Israel. If they needed a pep talk, they weren't going to get it from Joel. See, here's the deal. See, many of us, the people of God, have allowed ourselves to be under the bondage of sin for a long time, and we feel bad about it. We do. We don't call it bondage. We won't call it bondage. We give it pet names. It'll be like, this as well, this is my pet sin. This is my thorn in my flesh I deal with. Oh, this is just, this is my dark side. This is my personality. This is the way I was raised. This is my burden to bear. But in reality, it's bondage. And what we want often is someone just to give us a pep talk. See, we want the preacher to tell us what we need to hear so that we can just get through it and survive another day in our sin. The truth is, cultivate church, God's judgment is here. His judgment is here. Now, I want you to hear me carefully and follow me carefully. Many people think that if they do wrong, oh, if I sin, God's going to smite me. Have you ever talked to anybody and they said, well, we sin, God will smite me. You know what I'm talking about. Then there's the other side of that coin. They think, well, I'm a believer. There is no judgment. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus if I'm saved and I can do whatever I want and I have no concern. Both of those scenarios, the smiting of God or this long way of no repentance both of those scenarios are wrong and spiritually ignorant in their thinking. And by ignorant, I mean ill-informed. See, God, the truth is, God is a righteous judge. And he has the right and he will judge all peoples of the world. Yes or no? Yes. See, God has judged his people. God will judge his people. Judgment day is coming, and I declare that it is here. But here's what I want you to understand. Here's the cool thing. Under the law, God dealt with sin through his, what I call his active judgment. Uh, meaning that as if people continue, as his people continually disobeyed, and if they lived in unrepentant sin and continually turned to idolatry, he would give them time to repent. He would extend his mercy. He would extend his grace. He would send his prophets. He would, he would do that. He would do everything that he could to turn the people's hearts toward them. And if they did, he was loving and he would change his mind. That's the word, relent, repent. He would change his mind and not give the people what they deserved. But if they didn't, 
he would judge them with an active judgment. So we see, for example, an active judgment of God would be like the flood, or he would judge, he would send plagues, or he would destroy cities with fire, or by his hand, he would then send nations to come around his people and take him into captivity. That's God's active judgment by his hand. God would arrange it. Israel and all the nations of the world were under God's active judgment. You following me? Okay. But under the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus, we now live under what I call God's passive judgment. It's judgment all the same because God is the, the righteous judge. It's both righteous and loving and merciful and just, but it's different in its dispensation to us. Now, here's what I mean. When Jesus Christ died for our sins, he took the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world on his shoulders. Now, I want you to flip over to Romans with me for just a second. Romans 3.25, and I want to show you. I want to show you. Romans 3. Verse 25, it'll also be on the screen. It says this, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, and people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. All right, now, he's saying the whole world now is atoned for, and there is... Nothing good enough that anyone could do to be in right standing with God and our hearts are prone to wonder from God without Jesus. We're all doomed to the active judgment of God and rightfully justifiably so. But wait, look at this. This sacrifice of Jesus shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Now in times past, he's talking about under the old covenant before Jesus. Okay. Verse 26, for he was looking ahead and included them in what, would, in what he would do in this present time. And God this, did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Now, in my opinion, by the way, I believe this is one of the most loving statements about God in, the, in his character of love. Verse 27, it says, can we boast then that we have done, that we have done anything to accept God? Can, do we have that as boast? No, because our acquittal then is not based on the law. It is based on, what's the word? It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. In other words, this passage in Romans, what it is saying is here's the change of dispensation of God's judgment. God does not respond in judgment to what we do by obeying the law. We respond to what God does through faith in Jesus. You see the difference? But here's the deal. Here's the deal. If we refuse, we no longer get the reactionary response of God to our sin. He's no longer responding to us. But here's what happens in God's passive judgment. God simply removes his hand of blessing and protection from us by the distance that we create by continuing to live in our sin. You follow me now? You follow me now? Don't take my word for it. Romans 1.24 says this. 
So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things that their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each, with each other in their bodies. See, we're prone to wonder. We're prone to do that. Every one of us are born in that condition. And they traded the truth of God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things that God created. Oh, they were worshipers. They were serving. They did those things, but they weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping the things that God created. It was displaced. So close, but displaced. Instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. And that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. See, this word abandoned, that word abandoned, by the way, it means to, he delivered them over. If you want to write that down, it delivered them over. It means that if you, if you look that word up, it means that he took his hand of restraint off of them. In other words, God says, if you want to go ahead and live life without me, I've made a way for you. But if you want to choose your own way, if you want to live life without me, then go ahead. You got it. And as a result, see, God gives us over to our lifestyles of our choosing. And guess what we become then when we're in our lifestyle of our choosing? See, we become like sitting ducks. We become fodder for the enemy. And when we then start experiencing this built-in negative consequences of living independently from him. See, that's just the way it works. That's the way sin works. So here's the good news. God, in his mercy, in his grace, as he did long ago, is still here and he's extending his hand. And he's calling out for true repentance while there is still time. Hallelujah is right. If you're taking notes today, when answering the call of true repentance, number one, true repentance, it must be sincere. If God is coming to you and he's calling you to repentance, repentance must be sincere. Now, let's go back to our passage, Joel 2, 12. It says, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. And then what does he say? He says, give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. So God's saying here, I don't just want your prayers. I don't just want your words. I want your sincerity. God says, give me your hearts. Give me your hearts. Some of you might have the personality that you don't show a lot of emotion. Um, I'm opposite. Uh, I'm like, you know, I'm like Paul on Little House of the Prairie. I cry at the drop of a hat. You know, a good story. I cry at him crying. And uh, y'all remember those extreme home makeover home editions. Remember when that used to come on Ty Pennington and, and all that? I'd cry every one of them. I'd cry every one of them. And, and Carolyn, the kids would be sitting there and they're like, look over at me like I was crazy. But, but see, a lot of people don't have that kind of personality. I do, but a lot of people don't. And I understand that. Especially when it comes to God, because we'll say, well, it's personal to me. It's personal. I don't, I don't, I don't show a lot of emotion. But sincere, I, I just want to point out, sincere repentance and a giving of your whole heart is a grievous act. 
and it will most certainly move the seat of your emotions. But your sincerity is not marked and measured by your emotions alone. It will be marked by your actions. God particularly said to his people, he said, give me your hearts. Lay it out to me. Give me all that you have, all that you are. Put it on the line and I better, I best see some actions. In other words, show me that you're sincere. Come to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Now, we know what fasting is. We've learned that already. It's a denial of the flesh and it's a mechanism that God has built into place for us to humble ourselves before him when we come to him. Now, weeping in this passage, just so you know, it means out of humiliation and contrition of sin. That's what it means. So when it's not talking about a humiliation in front of others, well, I'm humiliated that I, I sinned. I'm, I'm embarrassed by that. It's talking about an inward grieving. It's a humiliation before God for your sin, not before somebody else. Because by the way, we're all sinners here. We're all sinners for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one ought to be ashamed. And then there's mourning. That is the outward grieving. That's what it means. Outward grieving, mourning. So God is saying here in this passage in Joel, if you come to me in repentance, you better mean it. And for me to know that you mean it, you'll have to show me. You'll humble yourself with fasting. You'll come. You will have an inward grief of your contrition of sin, and it will affect you outwardly. It will affect you outwardly. When you truly answer the call of repentance, the condition of your sin will turn you inside out. It bypasses your discretion and your personalities and your cultural conditioning. And God knows us all too well because then he says in Joel 2, 13, he says, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. And see, in Jewish tradition, when they were in mourning, they would tear their clothes. There was a reason for that because it was an outward sign that they were so overcome with grief that they didn't care what they looked like. If they looked disheveled, they didn't care how bad they looked. They didn't care if they ruined their clothes. They just didn't care. But here's the deal. Joel knew and the Lord knows that someone can go through the motions. You can uh, tear your clothes. You can dishevel your hair. Put on the act of mourning and sorrow, but not really mean it. People can do that. The God is saying, I see right through your act. If you're going to come to repentance in me, if you want me to change my mind, if you want me to bless you, if you want me to protect you, you must come to me in utmost sincerity. And in sincerity, by the way, it will be marked not just with the tearing of your heart. It will be marked with action. Inward sorrow, outward mourning, the whole package, the whole package. When we're answering the call to repentance, it must be sincere. The second point is this, when we're answering the call to repentance, repentance is not business as usual. Bis repentance is not business as usual. Joel 2.16 says this, gather all the people, the elders, the children, and even the babies. 
Now watch this. He says, call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Verse 17, let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar. Now, what does that mean? What does all that mean? This call to repentance was a call for everyone from the least to the greatest. In other words, no one was exempt. No one was exempt. And it was the call that brought these people out of their normal routines and their normal practices. Even the bride and the groom, it said here, it it said even on their special day, their wedding day, when the bride has it how she wants it, even on that day, there was a call for them to interrupt their schedule to answer the call to repentance. They were to come out of their rooms. Even the priests who would normally minister in the inner sanctuary, they had their positions. They didn't go in other places. They had their positions. They were called to reposition themselves in another place in the temple to station somewhere else to come to repentance. The corporate call to repentance interrupts the normal of our lives. And I believe when the Lord calls a people to fasting and prayer, he will ring all of our bells to the call of repentance so that nothing can stand in the way of him answering our prayers as a church. The thought otherwise, I cannot even comprehend it. Now, I want you to turn to a little passage in Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Are you with me? Okay. There's a reason pastors don't preach much about repentance. Can you tell? It's a difficult thing to preach on. Now, Song of Solomon 2.15, I want, I want to read this very simple passage to you. And I've, I've used this passage in a prayer service before here. It says, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. For the grapevines are blossoming. Some translations say the vines have tender grapes on them. Simple little passage. Catch all the foxes, the little foxes. All right, now what does that even mean? Where are you going with this, Pastor? What are the little foxes? What does that mean? When we read Song of Solomon, we think of it as the love chapter, right? And it's kind of, it's there, it's poetry. Yes, it is. And we we, uh, think of it literal. And that's okay, can't. But... It's allegorical, uh, I believe. Uh, and an allegory, you know what allegory is. It's a story or a poem uh, interpreted to reveal something else. Okay? It has, a, has a, a different meaning in it. Now, here's why I, I believe that that's so, and most um, theologians uh, agree to this, because of the nature of Scripture. Think of the totality of Scripture, which is all about redemption and relationship between God and man. And so I I believe then that this is talking, Song of Solomon 
is talking about our relationship between us and the Lord and the love that he has for us and that we share. So I want to lead you today from that perspective of thinking at it as a holistic approach to the gospel. The, the perspective between our relationship between us and Christ. The little foxes here, I believe, represents the little sins that may ruin our relationship with Christ. The sins may be small, but they can destroy a whole garden. These little foxes, we already mentioned, they may be our little pet sins, our little personalities, the little things that we deal with. Oh, that's my, that's my thorn in the flesh. Yeah, yeah, my mom was that way. I'm that way. My dad was that way. I'm that way. Yeah, it's been in my family. I deal with it too. A little compromise here. A little disobedience here. A little indulgence here. A little unbridled tongue here a little hypocritical spirit here. And then before you know it, the fruit of relationship between us and the Lord is just eaten up. It's just eaten up. Charles Spurgeon said this, if you have any sign of spiritual life, if you have any tender grapes upon your branches, the devil and his foxes will be sure to be at you. When we're fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit will reveal some of those little foxes of sin that are hindering you from your relationship with the Lord. I want to share with you some of those potential little foxes of sin that we might need to repent of. And then today, we're going to do something that we've never done before during a Sunday sermon. And we're going to shift into a prayer meeting. Here's what I want you to do. As I go through these little foxes of sin, if you have... Uh, a place to take notes and something to write with, or you have a device to do so. I want you to be very open to what the Holy Spirit might say to you as I share with you some of these little foxes of sin. And as something hears you and it marks you, would you just simply write it down? Or maybe a way that you can recall it. When I finish the list, we will consider ourselves in sacred prayer before God. And the altars will be open. But you don't have to wait. I feel like the Holy Spirit just kind of said this morning, just Daniel, let me have my way. Don't put restrictions on me. So at any time that you need to 
if you want to come to an altar or kneel where you are, you just begin to do so. What I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to drop the discretion. You understand what I mean by that? And just come before a holy God and allow him to search your heart and meet him with sincerity and bring you out of business as usual. As you repent before the Lord, if he so leads, some of you may feel the leadership of the Spirit to voice a prayer both to God and to this congregation. I want you to feel the freedom and the invitation to do so. But now I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Sometimes we can unmeaningly think about what other people need to repent of. But not today. As you do business with the Lord, and if you pray out loud, whatever you pray quietly or out loud, I'm going to ask that your prayers would be solely focused on repentance for yourself and on your trespasses before God, not those of someone else. Fair? The first thing that I would like for us to pray over is anger. Anger in Scripture can mean multiple things, and it comes in a package of bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. It can mean revenge or hurts. Keeping accounts, impatience. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so there's the sin of anger. If the Holy Spirit speaks to you about anger or any of those, just simply at the moment, just write them down so that you can deal with them. Then there's the sin of pride. Pride is, you could describe it as cold heart or cold love. Pride with it comes a critical spirit, judgmentalism. It can bring about envy and jealousy, murmuring and complaining. You don't have a servant spirit. And out of it, you perhaps offend others. You become opinionated and maybe even stubborn. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
if the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you about pride or any of those things, make note. Then there's the sin of self, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-pity, self-justification, defending my rights, striving with God, being a spiritually spoiled child, unkindness, unloving attitude or actions, insensitivity, impatience. John 3.30 says, he must increase and I must decrease. Then there's the common sin of no fear of God. That could entail disobedience, compromise, a tolerance of evil, idols in the heart, maybe the family, your time, self, your job, leisure, comfort. Busyness, laziness, idleness, undisciplined life, a loss of first love for Jesus, little prayer, not knowing God through his word, not heeding discipline by God, not keeping God's day holy, people pleasing more than God pleasing, no concern for the lost, a misuse of the tongue, gossip, Procrastination. Matthew 10, 28 says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Then there's the sin of control. Perhaps there's expectations that are not God-given that you've had and you've been disappointed. Maybe demanding your rights when we really have none. Maybe there's an independent spirit where you do not depend on the Lord. Maybe it's manipulation or perfectionism, all for the sake of control. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Guess what? We are not in control. Then there's the sin of lust. It could be coveting a person sexually, sexual indulgence perhaps, love of the things of the world. See, lust is not just sexual in nature. It's this thing that we have to have something now. It's a divided heart. Maybe it's eternal values versus the world's values. Gluttony, addiction to anything, food or television, pleasure, reading, sports, alcohol, drugs, any of those things. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from this world. Then there's the little fox sin of lying. And that might be false pretense or falseness. It could be deception. Even subtle. Perhaps a slight untruth. 
Luke 8, 17 says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And finally, but not exhaustively, there's the little fox sin of unbelief. Maybe the fear of, well, what if? What if I do this? What if I don't do this? Maybe there's guilt. Maybe there's living by feelings or no joy or you, you suffer with depression or hopelessness or tension or anxiety or worry. I'm not talking about the kind that might be caused by uh, something um, uh, medical. But I'm talking about unbelief and that God is in control. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in, in an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God.